Welcome to the CEO.Digital Show. My name's Craig McCartney. And I'm Darcy Thompson-Fields. And this is an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights that will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders now and in the future. You can find out more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Today's guest is Mark Cusack, CTO of Yellowbrick. Once a PhD physicist and researcher in parallel simulation for the UK Ministry of Defence, Mark heralds an impressive back catalogue of academia, having held product management and chief architect roles for several notable startups and enterprises. Mark's recently celebrated his one year as CTO at the one of the world's fastest data warehouse um, service companies, Yellowbrick. We're lucky enough to get him on the show today to talk to him, and I've also been lucky enough to host multiple Chief Wine Officer events with Mark, so we know each other fairly well from a Zoom perspective, but welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks very much, Craig. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, so let's just jump straight into it. Your career has taken a few twists and turns along the way before becoming the CTO of Yellow Brick. I mentioned it in the the introduction, which was very impressive, I have to say, but can you just tell us a little bit about your background touching on some of the, the items I mentioned and then, you know, how you became to be the CTO. Yeah, and it all started because I'm a very old guy. So it started quite a long time ago. And uh, I was born in, in the UK and grew up there and went to college there. And pretty early on, I was pretty fascinated with physics uh, as a kid at school. And I decided I wanted to do that for further studies. So I went to Newcastle University and did a, an undergraduate physics degree there. And, and I couldn't get enough of it. And so I decided to stick around and do a, a master's and a, and a PhD in, in physics as well. And I was very lucky enough to be involved in quite an exciting area where I was doing a lot of theory work around next generation semiconductors, looking at how to model the quantum electronic and optical properties of quantum wells and dots and things like that. And that's really what got me into what would be high performance computing, because I was using a lot of big computing systems to model these quite exotic semiconductor structures. Yeah, I'd like to say I understood most of what you were saying there. <laughs> but so, you know, in terms of that jump from, you know, the Ministry of Defense, what was the reason? What sort of caught your eye at that moment? Yeah, well, because of my deep interest in in kind of using simulations and, and modeling techniques, using very, very large distributed arrays of of compute capabilities in my sort of academic work, it was not that much of a leap actually to go into more applied research and away from more of the academic space. And back in the kind of late 90s, when I joined the Ministry of Defense's research establishment, they had you know a very, very strong sort of parallel and distributed simulation capability within there that was very much aimed at helping the UK armed forces with training and, and modeling for operations and and things like that. And so I was quite able to take my skills that I'd learned through academia and and in physics and actually apply it in lots of different ways and quite interesting ways to a completely different problem space. And so I was lucky enough to be able to do things while I was there. We had a lot of academic freedom even in the Ministry of Defense at that time. So I was researching things like face recognition, pervasive computing. I even managed 
do things like take the Navier-Stokes equations, which describe fluid flow and use those to model crowd movement and things like that. And then got into got into databases, actually, again, through a, quite a slightly orthogonal way, uh, route there as well. Yeah, that is uh, very interesting. And then in terms of those other examples, I know you mentioned something about, um, you know, when some of the sort of the armed forces were in the field. Can you just elaborate on that example? I, I found it quite interesting in the pre-interview, so I want to make sure our guests can also benefit. Definitely. Well, that's really what got me into the world of databases and data warehouses and, and SQL and, and analytics back in the day, because you turn the clock back down to sort of year 2000 or whatever, and the UK and its allies were involved in sort of large-scale field exercises, you know, think, think of uh, sort of huge sort of squadrons of tanks roaming over the Canadian prairies and things like that. And, and what often they would want to do after performing one kind of exercise or another is have a brief in-field what-if analysis and kind of a retrospective for how the training went. And so you'd have all these squaddies, all these gunners all, all around trying to figure out what went right, what, what went wrong, what would they do differently in the future. And we came upon the idea of providing a ruggedized analytics capability that they could deploy in the field to help them do these kinds of retrospectives. And so given the freedom that we had, we basically had a blank sheet of paper. And so given the very small footprint and capabilities of laptops back in those days, we decided, well, what's really required is a highly efficient in-memory database that can store all of the time series, all of the sensor data from the operations and rapidly kind of play back the analysis. And so that's really what came out of that was this database technology that we ended up ultimately spinning out of the Ministry of Defence and forming a startup company uh, called Rainstore out of it. And that's actually what took me from the UK to San Francisco. And we productized that, we sold that, and, and eventually it ended up as being an online archive for data warehouses. So it was kind of a bit of a leap from military technology and IP, but straight into the commercial world of um, analytics and, uh, and databases. And that sort of knowledge and that product you developed, that has also sort of inspired the, the next moves in your career, you know, through to Teradata and then Yellowbrick? That's right. In fact, uh, the, the Rainstore company got acquired by Teradata in around 2014. So that's kind of the leap to Teradata. And Teradata at the time was one of the leading data warehouse companies anywhere, in fact. And so I was lucky enough over around five years at Teradata to start off with helping to run the Rainstore product line when it was there, then moving in to leading as their IoT initiatives in Teradata as chief architect, and then getting more and more involved into the core data warehouse product at Teradata and ultimately uh, ending up owning that from a product management perspective before joining Yellowbrick. And then talking about Yellowbrick, what's your day-to-day as CTO? I know you just touched on some of what it could be, but just for the benefit of our listeners. Yeah, as a chief technology officer at Yellowbrick, I spend a lot of my time speaking with prospects and customers and the kind of market analysts as well, as well as doing events and podcasts just like this as well. So a lot of evangelism goes on and a lot of really looking closely at the demand signal in the market and where the market trends are going so that we can kind of keep one step ahead of those as well. And as well as not only worrying about our own product strategy within uh, Yellowbrick, putting together a, a robust roadmap that the field understand and, the, the, and working with marketing to make sure that's widely understood by our customers and prospects. And part of my role as well is running 
product management as well. So it's kind of a, a an eclectic mix of of lots of different things, and it's a it's a great job to have. And what are the sort of challenges you help your customers solve? Yeah, I mean, we, we solve a lot of problems for our customers where they typically, I would say, categorized in, in three different areas. Either some of our customers have been on legacy data warehouse technology that's really end of life. It's not providing the scale, the concurrency that they need. It's expensive to operate and expensive to keep going forward with. And so they look for a new modern alternative and, they, and they'll look at us because we have pretty pretty outstanding price performance characteristics with our data warehouse product. Um, I'd say also the second category that I see of, of challenges are customers that are using things like data lakes and trying to use them as a data warehouse. And, and they are very, very different tools. And often you, you might end up using the wrong tool for the job. And so we often go in and help data lake users augment their capabilities with a, a very, very fast uh, data warehouse capability. And last but not least, an emerging trend that I'm seeing now is kind of a, a reaction against some of the deficiencies in cloud data warehouses that exist today. So the modern cloud data warehouses, whether it's about unpredictable spend, poor scaling characteristics, who are looking for modern alternatives. We're seeing a lot from the early adopters of these technologies coming towards us now. And for the layman, such as myself, and maybe a lot of our listeners who aren't in that space, what is the difference between a data lake and a data warehouse? Yeah, that's a great question. So a data lake is typically used for cheap and deep storage. And so it's in the past backed by things like Hadoop. So if you're familiar with Hadoop, you think of it as the, the first ever kind of data lake pattern. But now increasingly, it's about storing lots of data in object stores and then using consumption engines around those, those object stores to, to consume that data. And it's typically used in a lot of data science use cases, a lot of more semi-structured, unstructured data use cases are what the data lake is quite well suited for. On the other hand, a data warehouse is for highly structured relational data. So what you typically understand from an SQL database, which is technology at the heart of any, any data warehouse. That's good to know. I probably should have asked you that at the start of our <laughs> event series. <laughs> and then in terms of some case studies from a yellow brick perspective, are there any that you can talk about openly? I mean, we can post links as well on the podcast page, but are there any sort of notable case studies where yellow brick have really helped solve some of those big data challenges? Yeah. And, and I think what one of the things that, again, sets us apart is we're seeing an increasing demand for more near real-time analytics and, and also for services that provide data as a service that our customers provide to their customers as well. So to kind of merge that use case into one, one of our customers is LexisNexis, um, and they have a product line called Threat Metrics. And basically, if you purchase anything online that isn't through Amazon, the chances are you've used Yellowbrick in the background because the threat metrics product that they have is responsible for doing near real-time online fraud detection. So if your credit card's fraudulently used, they can detect that payment very, very quickly and take appropriate actions. And so it's quite interesting because a lot of people don't know that they're probably touched yellow brick without even knowing it. And they and LexisNexis processes around 20 billion financial transactions every month, all being stored in yellow brick or being processed. And it's a very, very kind of near real time aspect. Obviously, when it comes to 
credit card fraud, you can't hang around. You've got to kind of respond very, very quickly. And so we're seeing a lot more use cases in that domain and in other other examples as well. And you can see these all on our website if you go there. Others where customers are providing, our customers are providing data as a service to their customers. So we have a, a customer in the medical research space that provides medical data sets and analytics to their medical research end users. And so again, we're seeing kind of more of a demand for that data as a service. And that LexisNexis example, how long, you know, from saying, yes, let's work together to sort of the implementation where you are, you know, you're processing 20 billion transactions through Yellowbrick, how, how long does that all take in terms of that, you know, that life cycle or sort of that implementation process? It's a relatively quick, and it obviously the mileage varies. It all depends on the kind of how how complex the ecosystem that we find ourselves coming into is. But in the case of LexisNexis, it was quite a, a straightforward proposition. And in fact, going back to those challenges I mentioned earlier, it was in the data lake being inappropriately used as a data warehouse category. So they were using Impala, which is a SQL query engine that sits above Hadoop. And they were trying to satisfy this near real-time fraud analytics use case. And what they found was they just simply couldn't get the query performance they needed out of it. And their users and customers were getting very frustrated and missing their service level agreements around it. And so what we could simply do is come in and lift and shift that data remarkably quickly and very, very quickly show a great deal of business value where they would we'd meet their SLAs of less than five seconds per query response times. And, you know, they were getting into the minutes before and we were able to very, very quickly deliver a lot of value. And I think one of the quotes I remember from our customer there was my sleep patterns have improved immeasurably since adopting yellow brick because it's been so much more reliable and performant than, uh, than the previous solution. Thank you, Mark. So let's look at the sort of the move to the cloud then and, and how that's impacted uh, you know, uh, in, impacted your customers and from your perspective, what would you say the, I mean, has the, the move to the cloud helped you or, or hindered you guys as an organization? And what are the common challenges that you're seeing from your customers with that move? Yeah, and I'd say 99% of all of the customers and prospects I speak to and the enterprises I speak to are on a cloud journey of one form or another. They've either part of their digital transformation efforts or there's a cloud mandate and there's obviously a great deal of interest and movement there. But some industries are further along than others and, and we often find ourselves working very closely with financial service institutions or insurance businesses or even telco. And what's interesting about those businesses is often they have quite strict governance regulations, data sovereignty requirements, which makes them think very carefully about where and how quickly they move towards the cloud. And so we often find use cases that span multiple clouds and even their own on-premises data centers because they may not be quite ready to move lock, stock and barrel straight into the public cloud. And so one of the things we help customers with is that strategy and enable them to essentially say, well, you can have some of your workloads in your own data center, some of your workloads in the public cloud. We can combine those two in one form or another and give you a lot of optionality. So when the time comes, if you choose to go to one cloud or another, or even repatriate back on premises, we've got the options and capability to support you there. So that's one of the things I think that, again, sets us apart from a lot of 
the other data warehouses in the market and that we can basically deploy anywhere. Are there any exciting projects that you're working on at the moment with regards to Yellow Brick? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of exciting stuff going on at the moment. And, you know, one of the emerging trends that we've seen really takes the form of asking the question, well, where's cloud computing going to go next? And so earlier this year, we very, very heavily put our bets behind a new concept that's emerging called distributed cloud. And so distributed cloud essentially takes that idea of deploying cloud computing resources, both in your data center and private clouds, as well as public clouds, but provides a degree of uniformity and it goes beyond hybrid cloud. And so you can now think of a landscape in which you can deploy analytics, not only in public cloud centers, not only in your own data center, but also at the network edge. And so a core enabler of that is the idea that the public cloud stacks, like in AWS and Azure and, and, and Google Cloud, will become ubiquitously available. You'll have those public cloud stacks, not only where they are in the cloud centers today, but also at the network edge, in your own data center. And so you have this uniformity in terms of the API and services on which you can deploy analytics. And so once you get that uniformity, you can have the ability to start to do things like deploy data warehousing right at the edge or at the in your own data center or et cetera, et cetera. And you can manage that much, much easily, more easily than, than you could before. And so we believe that distributed cloud would be important. And, and it was quite exciting to see Google just announce um, Google distributed cloud about two weeks ago, actually. So we, we believe the trend is going in the way that we predict it to be. So Google's distributed cloud, is that something that you guys would just work with or, I mean, because the name is very similar, so it's, it's not the same product set, essentially. It's just their version of it. No, because, of course, we we provide a data warehouse service on top of a distributed cloud. So if you think of distributed cloud as really the infrastructure behind what you could run a bunch of analytics and different applications on top of. And so data warehousing for distributed clouds is just one application that would sit on distributed clouds to exploit it. And so absolutely our, our work in, in starting to rethink what cloud native means, what that means at the network edge, what it means in your own data center and what it means in the public cloud is a big part in, in driving us towards that, uh, that vision of distributed cloud. I guess um, a lot of this information is going to be in that white paper that you wrote. Was there anything, in case listeners are short of time and the podcast is all they can do, is there anything from that, that white paper about the yellow brick on distributed cloud that you wanted to unpack a little bit more or just sort of give us the highlights real of? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that data warehouses are not well known for is their usability, typically. You know, the user experience around data warehousing it has not been modernized until up until quite recently with the emergence of the, the latest cloud data warehouses. But where we go one step further is provide a single pane of glass from which you can provision yellow brick literally anywhere. So from a single control plane, I can manage my data warehousing and analytics in any public cloud, at the network edge, and even in private clouds as well. And so we're providing a, a mechanism to make it much easier to consume data warehouses. And in order to actually implement and do this in efficient ways, we've had to totally rethink how we build our database software from the ground up using microservices architectures, relying on containerization and Kubernetes that gives us a easy, uniform way of deploying a data warehouse anywhere. Literally 
took the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask you about uh, containerization, Internet of Things, Kubernetes, and you know your predictions for these and how they, I guess, how they feed into your strategy at Yellowbrick. I mean, the, you just touched on it. Um, they, they play a part. But is there anything else that, that you can expand on? Yeah, well, when you look at most data warehouse technologies today, even those that are in the cloud, they've typically been a lift and shift of some monolithic code base from an on-prem data warehouse solution into the cloud. They've not been born into the cloud. They don't naturally have the key qualities that you'd expect from a cloud data warehouse, like separate compute and storage, seamless elasticity, easy usability, self-service access, and things like this. And our adoption of things like containerization and Kubernetes and our root and branch recreation of, of these core capabilities within our database means that we Kubernetes buys us a lot of this cloudiness out of the box. It allows us to have elasticity out of the box. It, it provides a huge degree of resiliency. That's part of Kubernetes' makeup, really. You know, when you define a data warehouse in Yellowbrick on Kubernetes, you simply say, this is the size of data warehouse I want. And then it's up to Kubernetes to completely achieve that end state and maintain it. So even if you're working in a, in a unreliable cloud environment where nodes might disappear at the drop of a hat, Kubernetes is there as the backstop ensuring that the service will resume and keep going, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been an incredibly important decision for us from an architecture perspective. What Kubernetes also buys us is the ability to abstract away from a lot of the underlying platform hardware that we sit on. And it means that we can deploy anywhere. And so it buys us both that kind of deploy anywhere capability, as well as a lot of the kind of cloudy features that people come to expect. And how does the cloud native Yellowbrick fit into some of those themes? Yeah, I mean, th this is the Kubernetes side of things is really important. And I think one of the things that we've done that is rather unique is we've hidden a lot of the complexity that's usually associated often with Kubernetes. It's it's a very command line driven kind of activity by the, with, with messing around with things like Helm charts that define and describe how you stand up Kubernetes systems. And it's, you know, very much programmer oriented in many ways and, and DevOps oriented. And so one of the things that we did from the very start was saying, we are gonna provide an SQL interface to Kubernetes. And what this is really important for is for database administrators who are obviously familiar with um, managing databases and schemas and tables, but within the same SQL language, we give them the power to manage their Yellowbrick clusters as well. So they can, from SQL, elastically expand or contract or suspend or resume clusters, provision new clusters, and they can do that anywhere. And so we do all the heavy lifting for them. We hide the details and complexity and let them use their favorite SQL tool to just administer the system in a way that they're used to doing. So I, I, think, I think that's rather unique in the market. And just jumping around now, I'm just thinking about the kind of companies that you, you work for in terms of your customer base and also the company type of companies that you came from, you know, public sector versus private sector. Does Yellowbrick work with both sectors? We absolutely do. And so, although we're not allowed to talk about it very much, but we have a, quite a number of government federal customers who are using Yellowbrick for a, a variety of applications, shall we say. But typically, you know, we have being a, a horizontal 
data warehouse platform, we find ourselves in lots of different verticals. So I mentioned financial services, insurance and telco, but we have customers in, in healthcare, in marketing, in retail, in manufacturing, and so on and so forth. And so wherever there's a price performance problem, wherever there's a need for near real-time analytics, wherever customers are starting to see the limits of their current analytics technologies is where we're typically brought in. And we usually do very well. We usually set up a, a proof of concept, which we'll run free of charge and get customers to load their own workloads and data onto Yellowbrick and prove it out. And one of the nice things is, is that the customers keep buying more. And so, you know, we have a very, very high net revenue retention rate, very, very high NPS score. And I, I think what's a, more than the technology, I would say, is one of the things that make Yellowbrick stand out is I, I really do think customers like working with us. They love it very much. And I think we're very easy to do business with. And I think that goes a long way. Yeah. And you mentioned price performance. I mean, you, you actually touched on it a couple of times. Is that a big USP of Yellowbrick's technology or software? It is, but I think it's important. But I think especially when you get into the world of cloud data warehouse, it's actually predictable spend that's equally as important. One of the nice things about cloud computing and cloud data warehousing is you have an on-demand kind of consumption model. You can pay as you go, pay by the drink or whatever, however you want to put it. And when you don't want to run analytics or data warehousing, you can shut the system down and not incur any costs. But the problem comes is predicting your budget. And it's, it often ends up with an uncomfortable conversation with your CFO when you're trying to set up a budget. And then one month into your budget, you've blown it by a factor of seven, which I've heard before. So one of the things that a lot of uh, folks are coming to us for is our ability to be much more predictable about the spend in cloud. And there's a variety of ways that we do that. But one of the things also that I think that we do differently from a lot of other cloud vendors is that we do a lot more with a lot less. And so typically the model in cloud data warehousing up until now is be is being if you want more concurrency, more data, more analytics, throw more boxes at it, throw more nodes, throw more credits, slots, or whatever, whatever consumption unit you have at the problem. And that's how costs spiral out of control. And so we've taken all of the efficiencies we've built in from the, every single layer of the stack of our software, brought it into the cloud, which means that we can do in a fraction of the resources what it takes to satisfy those, those customer challenges and requirements. Thanks, Mark. So there's a lot of questions <laughs> about Jellybrick there. Let's talk a little bit about the role of CTO. So some of our listeners are CTOs. Some of them are aspiring CTOs. What sort of advice would you give to someone who, you know, who wants to get to become a chief technology officer? Well, I, I think you've got to be a jack of all trades when you're a CTO. I think you've got to have one hand very, very closely aligned with business and market signals and demand signals coming from. You need to understand what the market trends are just as much as you need to understand what the technology trends are as well. And it, I think that in my view, the best CTOs are those that really understand the business challenges more than more than the technology challenges to, to a degree. That's where you know you start to spot a new gap in the market, a new opportunity, and then you're able to align your product strategy. So it's a, it's a wonderful role to have because it's a mix, as I mentioned earlier, of some product management, some product strategy, being able to talk to customers, analysts all the time, and it, it's just every day is, is a, a new opportunity to learn, which is just a fantastic. And would you say the a role of CTO for a tech company differs in a role? 
well, as a CTO for, say, a big enterprise company, say someone in financial services? No, I, I actually don't. I, I think the, the qualities of, of what makes a good CTO are the same everywhere. And as I said, is do you understand the business? Do you understand what the end users actually want? Do you recognize their pain and the challenges and also the opportunities there? And I, I don't think it matters if you're a vendor in the technology space or a, a CTO at a large enterprise. You, you're worried about the same concerns and, and want to gather more data to make more insightful decisions where you drive the business. That was more of a question for me, just to find out, just looking at your experience and, and obviously having interviewed other CTOs before. And then, you know, who's your favorite C-level executive to work with? Uh, oh, do you mean <laughs> in terms of roles? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Well, I my favorite then, it wouldn't go as a surprise, would be a combination of the chief revenue officer and chief marketing officer. You can have the best technology, the best product on the planet, but it's for nothing if you can't get it to market and position it right, package it right, and so on and so forth. And so I spend a, a great deal of my time working with our CRO and, and CMO to make sure that we're getting our message out there and people really understand the business our value we can deliver. Sure. I won't ask you who the worst is. Um, I won't put you on the spot like that. <laughs> so in terms of the future and predictions, I know you have spoken a little bit about that, but is there anything that we haven't spoken about with regards to, say, cloud and and where you know databases are headed or, or databases, they're quite constant and is cloud the, the changing variable? I do think there's areas of database technology. Well, first of all, actually taking a step back, you've got data warehouses on the one hand, you've, I mentioned data lakes on the other. We see we see the emergence of, of so-called data lake houses coming together now. So the idea that can you combine the data warehouse traditional workloads with some of these new kind of semi-structured, unstructured, AI, ML kind of data lake use cases as well. And I think, I think what we'll see from the data warehousing perspective is much more use of data warehouses to underpin a lot of machine learning activities going forward because data warehouses often contain some of the most important data in any enterprise. And so it goes almost without saying that you want that data to help train models so you can understand your customers' buying habits better. You can model your supply chains more accurately. You can kind of do a lot more predictive and prescriptive analytics with it. And so what I see data warehouses merging into is is for things like feature stores. And it's getting a little bit technical now, but when you go through the one, two, three stages of doing kind of any kind of advanced analytics project, you start off with preparing some data. So that's wrangling it around in the right form that you want to, to use it for. Then you want to take that data and train some models with it. And then the final third step is then you want to put those models in production and, and score and get some insights and actions out of it. And I think data warehouses haven't really been used very much for that data preparation or feature extraction side of things, earlier upfront side of things. So I really do think that we'll start to see data warehouses play a role as things like feature stores and provide a capability to reuse and share engineered features, which are the kind of nuggets of information you need to power your, your model training. And so we'll, we'll see this kind of merger of traditional descriptive analytics and data warehouses with more of the advanced analytics coming forward great thank you so i'm just looking at the time and i'm conscious we've got one more section really to get into but before we dive into that i mean in, from your perspective is there stuff that you feel like is not getting enough attention 
in terms of you know what you do for your clients and, and challenges the C-suites are facing when it comes to transformation and, and implementation of, of technology? Yeah, I, I think there's an orthogonal problem unrelated to the infrastructure that you think about of nuts and bolts of data warehouses and data lakes and things like that. And that's the governance of data and making it easy to find data, to share it securely and so on and so forth. And I think as ecosystems get more and more complex, you know, enterprises are often characterized by literally thousands of data silos everywhere. And I was talking to a very large bank not long ago, and they had something like 12,000 silos of data throughout their organization they sort of cataloged. And I think it's the governance of data as much as the infrastructure, which is a huge challenge right now. How can I trust the data I'm working with? It has this data drifted. What's the quality of the data? Can I really make fundamental business decisions on this data. So I think there's more opportunities to improve the, the governance side of things. And, and unfortunately, as the ecosystem gets more complex, the problem of governing data gets more complex too. Yeah, sorry, I just had to type in what orthogonal means into my Google search there. So <laughs> thank you for educating me. And then are you speaking at any events in the early new year? Are you going to events or is it all all digital at the moment? I'm going to be going to an event in Mexico City in November, which is a kind of a chief data officer event in Mexico City. And so things are starting to open up, actually. I was also in the UK about two weeks ago, finalizing our our sort of product strategy and resourcing plans for, for next year as a company. And so we're starting to see things open up. But most of the events, I have to say, through the next end of the year are, um, are, are virtual. Yeah. Okay, great. So th- we have one more round, and that is the, the quick fire sort of more lighthearted round, just to add a little bit of personality to the show. So it's not all just technology and strategy, but talking about those digital events, and this wasn't on your prepared list, by the way, what's the sort of best virtual event you've been to, I guess, over the last 18 months? Oh, I think you're just setting me up right now Craig, <laughs> to, to mention the, the fantastic chief wine officer event i'm actually being truthful those those are really good events and and i think we've actually as a business got a lot of value out of those a lot of qualified leads have come out of those a lot of great discussions and what's really nice about them is the informal nature of the setting of those kinds of events so those are the events i like best oh good you know I have been asking other guests and I realized when I had it on your sheets, I was like, oh, Mark's going to think I'm teeing this up. I always like to get the plug in, of course. I'm marketing and sales through and through. So, And then what's your guilty technology pleasure? Oh, gosh, my guilty technology pleasure. I'm not even sure if this is a technology pleasure, but I'm a, I'm a sucker for comedy podcasts. So I, I can while away hours and hours listening to podcasts like I don't know if you come across Adam Buxton or the Off Menu podcast or Bob Mortimer's Atletico Mint so I'll, I'll just listen to those often when I go running I like silly comedy like that and uh, it's, it's a good good way of unwinding it's a great way to listen to podcasts going running I find if I don't do something like running I often just stare into space and then I, I lose even though I, I'm hosting a podcast right now and then what would your your friends say you do versus what your family thinks you do versus what your boss thinks you do well, actually, it's interesting. In, in my house, I don't think anyone knows really what I do and because I'm always ending up doing something different all the time, every moment of the day, it feels like. So in the, in the house, it's been known as, oh, what's Mark doing? Oh, he's, he's off CTOing. So that's the, the code word. Are you, are you CTOing right now? Uh, yes. So that, that's about, about it. And your friends? 
did I think a similar thing? Well, a lot of my friends are in the technology space anyway, so they kind of know know what I do, you know, so whether it's in product management or that space. So yeah, a lot of folks that I know are in the startup space or in enterprise anyhow. So And then are you reading anything good at the moment? Am I reading anything good? I just read one of Malcolm Gladwell's latest books and it, the title escapes me completely, but he's obviously a great writer. So I've been reading a couple of his recently. Yeah, very good writer. I, I also, I know the book I think you're speaking of. I don't know the name either. And then anything good on Netflix is that you are sort of, do you get a chance ever to binge watch Netflix? I have recently, and the one I started getting into just the other day was Squid Games, which is quite a disturbing Netflix show, but yeah, it, it draws you in. It does, yes. <laughs> I think there's a, a nice genre of non-Western series and um, you know, non-English speaking series coming through, which I'm very intrigued by. What though I find is fascinating about that is I started turning the volume down because the dubbing on it, it almost tells an entirely different story to the subtitles. So if you just watch the subtitles, I think I think you get a much better idea of what, what really is going on and the intent and the tone to it. I think the uh, I think I think the dubbing on it is really poor. Yeah, I, I, did, I have to have it in the, the you know, language and then read it, definitely. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. I think we covered everything and, you know, in good time as well. But thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you to the guests for listening. Please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And that could be Apple, Amazon, Google or Spotify. I think I I nailed them all there. So Mark, thank you again for your time today. It's been great having you on the show. My pleasure, Craig. Lovely to meet you.